Hey there, we messed up. We made a change to our web servers that we didn't expect to have any effect on podcasts. Clearly, we were wrong, and it forced a bunch of episodes into NPR podcast feeds, resulting in downloads you didn't ask for. It also made it hard, or impossible, for you to find and listen to your favorite NPR podcasts. We are truly sorry for this. We fixed the root cause of the problem shortly after we discovered it, but it's taking a while for that fix to make it to all podcast apps. If you unsubscribed from this show, or any other NPR show, please take a minute to resubscribe. If you're still having problems, please go to npr.org help. We're taking steps to make sure nothing like this ever happens again. Thanks for listening. At what age do we actually become wise? You can probably pinpoint a certain time in your life when you learned a lesson or went through a rite of passage. But what if you found out that wisdom can come at any stage in life? On this episode, we explore those moments that make us wise from childhood through middle age and into our final years. Today's show is called Becoming Wise, and it originally aired in June of 2016. This is the TED Radio Hour. Each week, groundbreaking TED Talks. TED Talks. Uh, TED. TED. Technology. Entertainment. Design. Design. Is that really what it stands for? <laughs> I've never known that... Delivered it, at TED conferences around the world. the gift of the human imagination. We've had to believe in impossible things. The true nature of reality beckons from just beyond. Those talks, those ideas, adapted for radio. From NPR. I'm Guy Raz. So when it comes to the way we start out life, we're all pretty familiar with the milestones. Between six and nine months, you learn to crawl. Teeth, maybe a year in. Walking at about 15 months. And give or take, everyone pretty much goes through the same stuff. You have these incremental steps that the infant makes. And we're, we're all sort of not in agreement. Of course, yes, there are these steps that babies go through. But there are these steps that are just as profound and that are just as universal that continue on throughout the rest of our lives. For instance, says journalist Joshua Prager, there's something about being nine years old that we can all recognize in this line from the writer Robert Penn Warren. He says, when you are nine years old, what you remember seems forever. Hmm. For you remember everything, and everything is important, stands big and full and fills up time, and is so solid that you can walk around and around it like a tree and look at it. Or something about the age of 16 we all recognize in this quote. At 16, the adolescent knows what it is to suffer. From the French philosopher Rousseau. For he himself has suffered, but he hardly knows that others suffer too. The idea, of course, is all through life, there are experiences that all humans more or less share. And Josh Prager recently collected these ideas into a book. It's called A Hundred Years. And each page has a quote from a famous writer for every year of life. Some are harder to hear than others, like this quote from F. Scott Fitzgerald about the age of 30. He says 30. Brace yourself if you're not there yet. The promise of a decade of loneliness, a thinning list of single men to know, a thinning briefcase of enthusiasm, thinning hair. That's obviously, that's kind of harsh and sad. But it's also the time where we're finally getting our feet beneath us. And here you have this beautiful quote by Thomas Mann from Joseph and his brothers. At 30, a man steps out of the darkness and wasteland of preparation into active life. It is the time to show oneself, the time of fulfillment. Yeah. Yeah, There are all these turning points in it, but nonetheless, completely undeniable is the fact that there are these great patterns to life, and um, we all go through them. The idea behind Josh's book is that precisely because of life's great patterns, there are things we can learn about ourselves wherever we are in life, from people who have been there before. And that is wisdom. So today on the show ideas about wisdom in every phase of life and why the best wisdom seems to come before or after we need it. So first to Josh Prager on the TED stage about where the idea to collect 100 years of wisdom came from. I'm turning 44 next month and I have the sense that 44 is going to be a very good year a year of fulfillment, realization. 
I have that sense, not because of anything particular in store for me, but because I read it would be a good year in a 1968 book by Norman Mailer. He felt his own age, 44, wrote Mailer in The Armies of the Night, felt as if he were a solid embodiment of bone, muscle, heart, mind, and sentiment to be a man, as if he had arrived. Yes, I know Mailer wasn't writing about me, but I also know that he was. For all of us, you, me, the subject of his book, age more or less in step, proceed from birth along the same great sequence. Through the wonders and confinements of childhood, the emancipations and frustrations of adolescence, the empowerments and millstones of adulthood, the recognitions and resignations of old age. There are patterns to life, and they are shared. As Thomas Mann wrote, it will happen to me as to them. We don't simply live these patterns. We record them, too. We write them down in books where they become narratives that we can then read and recognize. Books tell us who we've been, who we are, who we will be, too. So they have for millennia. As James Salter wrote, life passes into pages if it passes into anything. Okay, Josh, so we have this uh, book of yours, which is uh, a kind of a, a list of 100 years of wisdom uh, for each year of life, a uh, quote on each page. Uh, I am 41. I'm, I'm 41. <laughs> and uh, what, uh, what's my quote? Well, your quote is by Naipaul, and it's, when we are 41, we all think it would be nice to make a fresh start. It's the kind of thing we laugh at when we're 42. <laughs> ah, this is amazing. This is so true. It's funny. With this book, what I've noticed to a person, when they open it up, they turn to their page. Yeah. It's very familiar um, to people. And so perhaps this entire arc of growing older was condensed into fewer years years ago. And my way to sort of share that with people was to point out that the phrase, the yellow leaf, was something that Christopher Isherwood used to describe a person of 53 only one century after Lord Byron used it to describe a person of 36. Wow. And yet, um, those same sort of um, ebbs and flows were things that people experienced then as we do now. So let's say, I don't know, 21. Because everyone, it seems like consistently when you ask people what age they want to be, like all the polls show that people tend to land on around 21, age 21, which is weird to me because I hated being 21. I was like desperate to like get out of my 20s. But 21. So what is it? So here I am. We're 21. uh, Charles Dickens, Dickens, 21. David Copperfield. I have come legally to man's estate. I have attained the dignity of 21. But this is a sort of dignity that may be thrust upon one. Let me think what I have achieved. So there's someone who is sort of realizing that maybe you've got to make your own way. Yeah. On For 17, it's beautiful. A little quote by Arthur Rambeau, a poem. No one's serious at 17 when Linden's line, the promenade. Um, so that for me encapsulates, you know, the beauty of of teendom where you're so sure of yourself. Um, but of course, life will humble you. Life humbles all of us. Milton Glaser, the great graphic designer who today is 85, all those years of ripening and an apotheosis, wrote Nabokov, noted to me that like art and like color, literature helps us to remember what we've experienced. And indeed, when I shared the list with my grandfather, he nodded in recognition. He was then 95 and soon to die, which, wrote Roberto Bolaño, is the same as never dying. And looking back, he said to me that, yes, Proust was right that at 22, we are sure we will not die, just as a thanatologist named Edwin Schneidman was right that at 90, we are sure we will. I know that I am not done. I still have my life to live, still have many more pages to pass into. And mindful of Mailer, I await 44. Thank you. So, Josh, collecting all this wisdom about, you know, how we experience each year of our lives, what, like, what stuck out to you about it? What I found fascinating is that once we're in our 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, 
each and every decade at the beginning is sort of a slap in the face. But then in the middle of the decade, we're sort of coming to peace with it. And we say, oh, this isn't so bad. And each decade, always in the middle, someone's saying, hey, this is kind of nice. There are some beautiful things here. So at the age of 55, Dostoevsky is writing that it is the flowering time of existence when real enjoyment of life begins. And then 65, Doris Lessing saying, there was nothing to getting old, quite pleasurable really, for if this or that good took itself off, then all kinds of pleasures unsuspected by the young presented themselves. And Hmm. I think a lot of us also wonder, you know, when have we kind of tipped into another stage? When has that happened? And there's a beautiful passage about that at the age of 49, which is Richard Ford. He's talking about the changes in life. But then he says, maybe the balances tip had already occurred. And something about today, when he'd later think back from some point further on, today would seem to suggest that then was when things began going wrong or were already wrong, or was even when things were at their greatest pinnacle. Obviously, we're only able to see these things in retrospect. But if you really live in the here and now and you're aware of your every step forward, I think you can sort of notice also when those tipping points are happening almost as they happen. Yeah. You know, I mean, we we've talked about this, like we assume that getting older, like just just by getting older, you know, because we're accumulating more experiences uh, that we accumulate more wisdom. Right. Yeah. But do you think that's always the case? I don't. And there's a beautiful quote for the age of 97, all the way towards the end, by Percy Seitlin. Um, And the quote is, a man of 97, unless he's a fool, has no message. (laughs) So sometimes the more we know, the less we know. Some wisdom from Joshua Prager. His book is 100 Years, Wisdom from Famous Writers on Every Year of Your Life. He's got a short talk about it. You can find it at TED.com. So maybe wisdom isn't something that's out of reach until we're older. Maybe, in fact, wisdom is something we can all tap into from a very early age. Every time I talk to a kid, honestly, I feel a little bit... I'm often shocked by how much insightful stuff they have to say and also how uninhibited they are to say it. This is Adora Svitak. She goes to college in California. She's also a published writer and speaker, and she's 18 years old. But years ago, when Adora was 12, she was just another kid, and she was noodling on an idea that made perfect sense to her. We have this vision of smarts or of wisdom as kind of this old sage in a tower with a long beard. It's kind of uh, my image anyway, who just dispenses wisdom and advice um, in the pages of some crinkly parchment book. So Adora thought, as any confident 12-year-old might, I should give a TED Talk about this, about the wisdom of kids. And because she was pretty good with a computer... I actually ended up looking up who the folks were at TED who made decisions about speaker lineup. And I was able to send an email off to the curator and to um, some other folks just in the leadership. And they actually responded. And they were intrigued. They said that they would think about it, which is, you know, a polite way of saying no, right? But uh, then... A couple weeks before that year's conference, this is in 2010... They called up and said, hey, we know this is short notice, but we have an opening. And it was like, okay, yeah, of course. (laughs) So when we come back in just a minute, 12-year-old Adora Svitak's TED Talk on the wisdom of kids and how 18-year-old Adora feels about it today. I'm Guy Raz. On the show today, ideas about becoming wise. Stay with us. You're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, everyone, just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who helped make this podcast possible. First, to Quip. Quip was designed to make brushing your teeth simple, affordable, and even enjoyable. One of the first electric toothbrushes accepted by the American Dental Association, Quip has a built-in two-minute timer that pulses every 30 seconds to remind you to switch sides. Sensitive sonic vibrations for healthier gums, 
and a multi-use cover for brushing on the go. Get your first refill pack for free at G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash radio hour. Thanks also to Gainbridge, the bold way to steady growth. People often think annuities are too conservative, too complex, or only for retirees. But annuities can be a smart way to hedge market risk and earn guaranteed returns. Gainbridge aims to change the game by offering simplified annuities in a sleek digital experience that replaces fine print and phone tag with clear conditions and a direct low-fee model. Learn more at gainbridge.life NPR. Gainbridge is not available in all states. And one last thing before we get back to the show. If you love the TED Radio Hour, then check out LifeKit, tools to help you get it together. Think of it as a friend who always has great advice on everything from how to invest to how to get a great workout. Subscribe to LifeKit, all guides to get episodes on every topic all in one place. Find it in your podcast app or at npr.org slash LifeKit. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, ideas about what it means to become wise. And as 12-year-old Adora Svitak explained in her TED Talk from 2010, being wise and being old are not necessarily the same thing. Now, I wanted to start with the question, when was the last time you were called childish? For kids like me, being called childish can be a frequent occurrence. Every time we make irrational demands, exhibit irresponsible behavior, or display any other signs of being normal American citizens, we are called childish. Which really bothers me. After all, take a look at these events. Imperialism and colonization, world wars. Ask yourself, who's responsible? Adults. Now, what have kids done? Anne Frank touched millions with her powerful account of the Holocaust. Ruby Bridges helped to end segregation in the United States. And most recently, Charlie Simpson helped to raise 120,000 pounds for Haiti on his little bike. So as you can see evidenced by such examples, age has absolutely nothing to do with it. The traits the word childish addresses are seen so often in adults that we should abolish this age discriminatory word when it comes to criticizing behavior associated with irresponsibility and irrational thinking. Thank you. Then again, who's to say that certain types of irrational thinking aren't exactly what the world needs? Okay, so Adora, that was that was you uh, six years ago, uh, and as we mentioned, you are 18 now, uh, and, and you still travel around uh, to schools and, and and stuff talking about this idea. So, I mean, so what do you think adults can learn from kids? I think that adults can learn from kids a reminder to not take themselves too seriously. Sometimes I feel like we don't interact with each other in a way that's real and in a way that's honest. And little kids running around outside playing tag, in some ways I'm very jealous of them because they have that real kind of interaction down. Um, It's kids who can really lighten a room and remind us that we're all kind of just monkeys in suits, you know. And (laughs) I love that about kids. I'd also say that that's a kind of fundamental honesty. And honesty, first and foremost, is a necessity for wisdom. You have to be able to confront what you see and tell it like it is. And I think that the naivete that kids often bring can lead to a willingness to just jump out there and and do things that we don't have as much when we're scared of being judged. Yeah, I mean, there's like a moment when when a kid kind of shifts into kind of adopting more of an adult-like worldview. But before that, like... It's almost like we can recapture our sense of wonder. I think that that's so true. Actually, I was thinking a little while ago about the way that I talk to my sister. And sometimes, I don't know if this is something that all siblings who are close to each other do, but we'll just, we'll revert to our kind of three and five-year-old selves and just make funny faces at each other and dance around. And what those moments remind me of is how much I think there exists within everyone, the most intelligent, the most serious people, there can be this very lighthearted wonder and this ability to play. And that's something that can enrich anyone's life. Maybe you've had grand plans before, but stopped yourself thinking, 
that's impossible, or that costs too much, or that won't benefit me. For better or worse, sweet kids aren't hampered as much when it comes to thinking about reasons why not to do things. Kids can be full of inspiring aspirations and hopeful thinking, like my wish that no one went hungry or that everything were free, kind of utopia. How many of you still dream like that and believe in the possibilities? Sometimes a knowledge of history and the past failures of utopian ideals can be a burden because you know that if everything were free, then the food stocks would become depleted and scarce and lead to chaos. On the other hand, we kids still dream about perfection. And that's a good thing because in order to make anything a reality, you have to dream about it first. When you see yourself giving this talk at, you know, like at 12 years old, are you are you surprised at how much confidence you like you had back then? I'd say that I'm not so much surprised at the confidence that I had then as much as how fast it goes. Now when I give a talk or when I am writing something to post online or even when I'm just speaking to a very small group of people, I feel a lot more sense of judgment and I guess appreciation of complexity, which is good. But also that can be an extremely paralyzing thing. Yeah, it's crazy. Like when we're kids, we're not we have no worry about being judged. We just get up there and do our thing. And then like in a short period of time, like by the time we reach our teens and then our 20s, like we're that's when we're like constantly worrying about those things. Yeah, it's so true. I think that. As we get older, the world starts demanding more in the way of qualifications from us. We have to have these line items on our resume. We have to continually be explaining why we deserve to be here. And whether it's college or a job or whatever else, those demands just seem to get bigger and bigger. But when you're a kid, you can be anywhere you want to be just because you want to be. Um, unless someone says, oh, you're too small or you're too little or you're not qualified. But I think that what I said in my TED Talk really spoke to the power of being able to just walk into a room and say, hey, I'm a kid, listen to what I have to say. Our inherent wisdom doesn't have to be insider's knowledge. Kids already do a lot of learning from adults, and we have a lot to share. Learning between grown-ups and kids should be reciprocal. The reality, unfortunately, is a little different, and it has a lot to do with trust, or a lack of it. Now, if you don't trust someone, you place restrictions on them, right? If I doubt my older sister's ability to pay back the 10% interest she I established on her last loan, I'm going to withhold her ability to get more money from me until she pays it back. <laughs> True story, by the way. Now, adults seem to have adults seem to have a prevalently restrictive attitude towards kids from every don't do that, don't do this in the school handbook to restrictions on school internet use. As history points out, regimes become oppressive when they're fearful about keeping control. And although adults may not be quite at the level of totalitarian regimes, kids have no or very little say in making the rules when really the attitude should be reciprocal, meaning that the adult population should learn and take into account the wishes of the younger population. Yeah, I remember that feeling being 12 you know, or 13 and, and, and feeling like there were all of these these rules that adults were setting for us and I didn't I didn't really have the tools to, to articulate why I thought those rules were so stupid you know but I knew that that there was something I, I needed to say I think that a lot of parents kind of forget what it's like to be a kid and it's easy to have this amnesia about what you were like when you were in second grade or what you were like when you were an awkward teenager with acne and who was just trying to get a date to prom. I think a part of our lives that we might even try to forget as we get older, but it's so important to remember the yearning for someone to listen to you, for someone to take you seriously. And when I talk to my little cousins who are, one of them is five, and I ask her these questions and I realize that she has very deep answers and she's extremely perceptive. There's so much under the surface. I think that kids are often kind of like icebergs in the sense that if all we do is we read them a story or we ask them how their day was, like we only get a little bit of it. But once we start kind of looking for more, we start asking them questions about bigger issues, we can find so much that is under the water. That's Adora Svitak. She's now a student at UC Berkeley. You can watch her full talk at TED.com. So if wisdom isn't tied to a particular time in our lives, 
Could it be tied to a particular place? People get a, a huge worry about their value in the world if they're not busy and doing something and being productive. But in nature, everything is just so uniquely itself. Writer and conservationist Boyd Vardy grew up in South Africa. I grew up in a remarkable place called Londolozi Game Reserve. Londolozi is a wildlife game reserve that's been in Boyd's family for generations. And so I grew up spending hours and hours and hours out in nature observing animals. And there is a pace to the natural world and a genius to the natural world that arises out of that state of being. You know, you'll watch lions lie for 18 hours in deep rest. And just watching them, you learn about the power of rest. And then, just as the temperature starts to shift, they feel the change on their body. And out of that deep rest comes an intensity of movement. And so they're in that rhythm, you know. And then they hunt with a ferocity and a focus. And they're extremely efficient. But they're never resting, thinking about being efficient, or being really efficient, wishing they were resting. They're always where they are. And that, to me, is the essence of wisdom, really, to be where you are and to allow action to arise out of that being. That's the natural world. Boyd is now in his early 30s, but he didn't always recognize how special it was to grow up where he did. In fact, what came to shape his ideas about wisdom, people, and the natural world happened when Boyd was very young, when one particular visitor came to the game reserve. When I was nine years old, President Mandela came to stay with my family. Boyd picks up the story from the TED stage. He had just been released from his 27 years of incarceration and was in a period of readjustment to his sudden global icon status. Members of the African National Congress thought that in the bush, he would have time to rest and recuperate away from the public eye. And it's true that lions tend to be a very good deterrent to press and paparazzi. <laughs> but it was a defining time for me as a young boy. I would take him breakfast in bed, and then in an old tracksuit and slippers, he would go for a walk around the garden. At night, I would sit with my family around the snowy, bunny-eared TV and watch images of that same quiet man from the garden, surrounded by hundreds and thousands of people, as scenes from his release were broadcast nightly. He was bringing peace to a divided and violent South Africa, one man with an unbelievable sense of his humanity. Mandela said often that the gift of prison was the ability to go within and to think, to create in himself the things he most wanted for South Africa, peace, reconciliation, harmony. Through this act of immense open-heartedness, he was to become the embodiment of what in South Africa we call Ubuntu. Ubuntu, I am because of you. Or people are not people without other people. It's not a new idea or value, but it's one that I certainly think at these times is worth building on. In fact, it is said that in the collective consciousness of Africa, we get to experience the deepest parts of our own humanity through our interactions with others. In a more collective society, we realize from the inside that our own well-being is deeply tied to the well-being of others. Danger is shared, pain is shared, joy is shared, achievement is shared, houses are shared, food is shared. Ubuntu asks us to open our hearts and to share. Ubuntu, uh, the root of the word, is a Zulu word. It's often described as, I am because of you, or we can't be deeply human in a vacuum. And I've extended that to say that uh, it is not only through people, but through our interactions with all sentient beings on the planet that we feel our humanness. When you live in a village, uh, naturally you live close to nature and the natural world around you affects the way you are. It creates extended family, it creates shared community, and it creates a sense of belonging to something. And I think that a lot of the anxiety disorders and depression that we see in the world are actually an undiagnosed homesickness for a sense of belonging. 
And that sense of belonging means to each other, to what it means to be human, what it means to be a part of the natural world. And the goal is to be so present that that humanity, whatever, whatever we are met by in other people, a compassion to be with that arises. And that brings us to a deeper part of ourselves. Boyd tells a story in his TED Talk that gets at this idea. And it's about a female baby elephant who passed through his family's game reserve named Elvis. And they called her Elvis because when she walked... She walked like she was doing the Elvis the pelvis dance. She was born with very badly deformed back legs and pelvis. When I first saw her, I thought she would be dead in a matter of days. And yet for the next five years, she returned in the winter months. And we would be so excited to be out in the bush and to come across this unusual track. And we would drop whatever we were doing and we would follow. And then we would come around the corner and there she would be with her herd. And then one day, we came across them at this small waterhole. It was sort of a hollow in the ground. And I watched as the matriarch drank. And then she turned in that beautiful slow motion of elephants. And she began to make her way up the steep bank. The rest of the herd turned and began to follow. And I watched young Elvis begin to psych herself up for the hill. She had a full go at it, and halfway up, her legs gave way, and she fell backwards. She attempted it a second time, and again, halfway up, she fell backwards. And on the third attempt, an amazing thing happened. Halfway up the bank, a young teenage elephant came in behind her, and he propped his trunk underneath her, and he began to shovel her up the bank. And it occurred to me that the rest of the herd was in fact looking after this young elephant. The next day I watched again as the matriarch broke a branch and she would put it in her mouth and then she would break a second one and drop it on the ground. And a consensus developed between all of us who were guiding people in that area that that herd was in fact moving slower to accommodate that elephant. What Elvis and the herd taught me caused me to expand my definition of Ubuntu. And I believe that in the cathedral of the wild, we get to see the most beautiful parts of ourselves reflected back at us. And it is not only through other people that we get to experience our humanity, but through all the creatures that live on this planet. Wow, it's such a beautiful story. I mean, just thinking about how the herd was, you know, was looking out for this elephant, I mean, it just makes you think that, you know, it's like this idea is intertwined in everything around us. Yeah. And it doesn't always show up in, you know, ways that we would consider harmonious. You know, sometimes the Ubuntu in nature is the swiftness in which an injured animal is taken out of suffering by another animal. But there's an elegance to nature and there is a way that everything is holding everything else. You know, I, my definition of harmony is everything is uniquely itself and by being uniquely itself, a part of a greater unfolding. And that is what all the ancient cultures knew, you know, this intricate connection. And when you live in a relationship with that, you start to know yourself as a part of. Within that is a kind of oneness and a felt oneness between all things. Boyd Vardy, he's the author of a book called Cathedral of the Wild. You can check out his full talk at ted.npr.org. Uh, can I ask you one more question? Yeah, absolutely. It, looking ahead into your 40s or like 50s, what, what advice would you give to your future self? Um, I would say I would love my older self to, to not be in the story of how it should have been but to live in deep acceptance with how it is. I think the only time we can really be unhappy is when the way we think it should be and the way it is are different. So to keep finding the ways that the way that life is right now is full and full of joy and full of everything you need. Boyd Vardy, more ideas about becoming wise in just a minute. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR.
Support for this podcast and the following message come from the Glenn Livid. Sona Bajaria, Vice President of Marketing, is trying to change people's perception of scotch. But the idea that scotch is the drink of the old boys club is hard to dismantle. It's not complicated. It's sophisticated. But the category hasn't done a great job of being inviting and welcoming. We need to continue to evolve with the consumer. To learn more about the Glenlivet's new place in the modern world, visit theglenlivetguardians.com. Enjoy responsibly. Planet Money tip number 17. Sometimes, life is exactly like the movies. T-minus 30 seconds. They said T-minus. They said T-minus. Planet Money, a podcast about the economy and sometimes about rocket ships. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, becoming wise, how we get wisdom, how we share it, and how we hold on to it or don't. Tony, did you think of yourself, like when you were a younger man, as a wise person? No, I was a smart kid. Tony Porter grew up between the Bronx and Harlem in New York City. I was, uh, you know what? Maybe in my own way I was wise because I was able to be a part of a lot that was going on while at the same time always conscious of not going in too deep, always conscious of, it's like my mom, she was always in the back of my head. Mm. For about a year I was involved in street gangs and I can remember going to a gang fight and guys were just getting pumped up, slapping sticks on the ground and chains on the ground and things like that. And I would be doing that. But while I was doing that, in the back of my mind, I was saying, man, if your mother could see you right now. (laughs) So it always stopped me from crossing certain lines. I don't know if I would call that wisdom, but it it helped me to still be here today and, and to do the things I do today. Tony Porter is in his late 50s, and he heads an organization dedicated to combating violence against women. And growing up the way he did left him with this idea that preventing violence against women isn't possible until we completely rethink what it means to be a man. Here's Tony Porter on the TED stage. Growing up as a boy, we was taught that men had to be tough, had to be strong, had to be courageous, dominating, no pain, no emotions, with the exception of anger and definitely no fear. That men are in charge, which means women are not. That men lead, and you should just follow and just do what we say. That men are superior, women are inferior. That men are strong, women are weak. I've later come to know that to be the collective socialization of men, better known as the man box. Now, I also want to say, without a doubt, there are some wonderful, wonderful, absolutely wonderful things about being a man. Well, at the same time, there's some stuff that's just straight up twisted. (laughs) I, I think back to my father. There was a time in my life where we had a very troubled experience in our family. My brother Henry, he died tragically when we was teenagers. And the burial was two hours outside of the city. And as we were preparing to come back from the burial, you know, the the cars stopped at the bathroom, you know, to let folks take care of themselves for the long ride back to the city. And the limousine empties out. My mother, my sister, my auntie, they all get out. But my father and I stayed in the limousine. And no sooner than the women got out, he burst out crying. He didn't want to cry in front of me. But he knew he wasn't going to make it back to the city. It was better me than to allow himself to express these feelings and emotions in front of the women. And, and this is a man who 10 minutes ago had just put his teenage son in the ground. Something I just can't even, I just can't even imagine. That must have been so hard for you, like so disorienting to see, to see that happen. Because your, your understanding was that men don't do that, right? Yeah, it was frightening. Uh, it was humbling. It was endearing. 
And the thing that stuck with me the most is that he apologized to me for crying in front of me. Hmm. And at the same time, he was saying how strong I was Hmm. for not crying. And that's what Tony thought it meant to be a man, to not cry. But around the age of 30, he had an experience that started to change his thinking. In the 80s, I moved out of New York City, and I began to work with youth who were incarcerated for selling drugs. This was during the crack cocaine epidemic. Uh, And that's when Tony says he started to see the connections between drugs and prison and race and class. And his work in those areas forced him to confront a bias he'd barely even thought of. I spent five, six, seven years working with women in the community I lived in up in Rockland County, New York, where I'm doing this work around race and class. And women are saying, that's wonderful, Tony, but what about your sexism? Hmm. And I was dumbfounded at the same time angry that they were challenging me. But it was through the help of these women that I began to look. And if I'm invested in ending racism, then I have to be invested in ending oppression that women and girls are experiencing. And I caught the fire. How How did that realization change your relationship to your children? Because you, you have a, a son and a daughter, right? Yeah, I have six children. Wow. I have two at home. I have a son and a daughter at home. And my youngest son is a big young man. Now, and he's 250 pounds. He's six four. He's about an inch taller than me. And uh, I'm challenging him around, you know, the importance of sharing his feelings, not being stoic. These are things that I would never have known to do. <laughs> You know, and just being able to have authentic conversations with my children, being able to talk about fear, you know, being able to talk about love, to be that way with my kids, to love my kids, to kiss my son. We don't end conversations with any of my children without, I love you, I care about you, I miss you, I need you, I have to see you. I like to just say, you know, my love of my life, my daughter Jay, the world I envision for her. How do I want men to be acting and behaving? I need you on board. I need you with me. I need you working with me and me working with you on how we raise our sons and teach them to be men. That is okay to not be dominating. That is okay to have feelings and emotions. That is okay to promote equality. That is okay to have women who are just friends and that's it. That my liberation as a man is tied to your liberation as a woman. I remember asking a, a nine-year-old boy, I asked a nine-year-old boy, what would life be like for you if you didn't have to adhere to this man box? He said to me, I would be free. Thank you, folks. You know, earlier, Tony, you said that you didn't think you were that wise, like as a young man. But now you have become that wise person. And it it must be scary sometimes because all of a sudden everyone's coming to you and you've got to transmit some wisdom. Right. And I don't always have it. You know, I don't always, I don't have all the answers. And I mean, I'll speak at an event and I'm there for at least an hour later and there are people who will wait. Yeah. They'll wait to talk to me. They won't leave. It's that that has really brought to my attention, not only the wisdom that I'm may have or people may feel I have, more so than that, it's brought to my attention the responsibility that I have. I think that's what really resonates with me today in my life. Tony Porter co-founded the group A Call to Men. You can see his entire talk at ted.npr.org. So at the beginning of the show, we heard from writer Joshua Prager and his book of quotable wisdom for each year of your life, including this line for the age of 65 from writer Doris Lessing. There was nothing to getting old. Quite pleasurable, really, for if this or that good took itself off, then all kinds of pleasures unsuspected by the young presented themselves. Yeah, so so what do you think? I love that quote. Do you like it? Yes. And, you know, there's research that shows that, as a rule, people get happier as they get older. 
Dr. Robert Waldinger. I'm clinical professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. Is 65, <laughs> by the way. Absolutely. And for years and years, he says, science had no way to explain what Doris Lessing was talking about. That is why many people get happier as they get older. Yes. Because trying to do a, a study tracking the entire scope of, of a human life is actually a really hard thing to do, right? They're really hard to do. They take tremendous persistence. Uh, funding is always about to dry up. You know, the investigators get distracted. There, there are just so many reasons why most, most longitudinal studies fall apart before the 10-year mark. Which is why it's so amazing that since the 1930s, a group of scientists at Harvard, led most recently by Robert Waldinger, have been working on something called the Harvard Study of Adult Development. And it's the longest study of adult life ever done, a detailed, systematic study of 700 men over 75 years of life, looking at every aspect of their health. Physical health, mental health, work life, relationship functioning. And then as people have gotten older, aging, retirement. And all in an effort to figure out, what was it again? It was originally the Harvard part was funded by W.T. Grant, the department store magnate, hmm. because he wanted to know what the characteristics were that made for good department store managers. Wow. That was, that was his interest in funding the study. He was looking for future department store managers. He was. Man. <laughs> Okay, but after that, the study went on and on and eventually became what it is today, 78 years later, an unprecedented source of scientific wisdom about what it takes to thrive in old age. Robert Waldinger described the study and its results on the TED stage. Since 1938, we've tracked the lives of two groups of men. The first group started in the study when they were sophomores at Harvard College. They all finished college during World War II, and then most went off to serve in the war. And the second group that we've followed was a group of boys from Boston's poorest neighborhoods. Most lived in tenements, many without hot and cold running water. To get the clearest picture of these lives, we interview them in their living rooms. We get their medical records from their doctors. We draw their blood. We scan their brains. We talk to their children. We videotape them talking with their wives about their deepest concerns. And when, about a decade ago, we finally asked the wives if they would join us as members of the study, many of the women said, you know, it's about time. <laughs> so what have we learned from the tens of thousands of pages of information that we've generated on these lives? The clearest message that we get from this 75-year study is this. Good relationships keep us happier and healthier, period. This is amazing. Like, this is what you, all of this data kind of filters down into this one key insight, right? Yeah. What is it about relationships, about good relationships that, that make us live longer and, and be happier? What is it about that thing? Well, what's not a surprise is that relationships keep us happier. What is a surprise, or at least was to us, was that they keep us physically healthier. And there are lots of ideas, hypotheses about why that is. So one idea is that if you are in happier relationships, the body is less stressed. Uh, another is that chronic stress or loneliness sets up certain patterns of turning off some genes, turning on other genes that make you more able to withstand external threat. Hmm. There's some ideas about evolutionarily why this might be useful, why it might have been useful. One of the things that we are trying to test is how exactly it is that childhood stressors and loneliness and difficult relationships get under the skin and into the body. And so that's a big part of our current work. And, and so, I mean, a good relationship doesn't necessarily mean that it's a relationship free of conflict or without problems or, or that, or, or, or does it? No, exactly. No, it doesn't. It turns out that, you know, arguing in relationships is not a problem as long as you have a kind of bedrock of affection and positive regard. That's what's most important. 
so that guy in my Facebook feed with like thousands of friends is, is <laughs> yeah. not going yeah. to live longer than me? No. That is not what we're talking about here? Uh, now, as far as we know, it's not what we're talking about. It's really the people you feel you can count on when times get hard. So there are people who are not partnered, don't live with anybody, but have close relationships. They have people they feel they can call in the middle of the night if they were scared or sick. And that's really the glue that both connects people and seems to keep people healthier. Now that you have all that information, do you, I don't know, do you feel like like you've become wiser? No, I don't think of myself as a wise person. And in fact, I'm always amazed when people uh, want to know what I have to say because my experience is, well, gee, if I can think of it, it can't be that wise. <laughs> uh, seriously. And, but I do look to other people for wisdom. And I've come to understand that we, we get carried away. We get distracted from the really important things. And that what we can do for each other is remind each other of what really matters. And that that's wisdom. This message that good, close relationships are good for our health and well-being this is wisdom that's as old as the hills. Why is this so hard to get and so easy to ignore? Relationships are messy and they're complicated and the, the hard work of tending to family and friends, that's not sexy or glamorous. It's also lifelong, it never ends. The people in our 75-year study who were the happiest in retirement were the people who had actively worked to replace workmates with new playmates. But over and over, over these 75 years, our study has shown that the people who fared the best were the people who leaned into relationships with family, with friends, with community. It might be something as simple as replacing screen time with people time, or livening up a stale relationship by doing something new together, long walks or date nights or reaching out to that family member who you haven't spoken to in years, because those all-too-common family feuds take a terrible toll on the people who hold the grudges. I'd like to close with a quote from Mark Twain. There isn't time, so brief is life, for bickerings, apologies, heartburnings, callings to account, there is only time for loving, and but an instant, so to speak, for that. Dr. Robert Waldinger, he leads the Harvard Study of Adult Development, the longest study of adult life ever. By the way, there are just a handful of original participants still alive from that study. But Robert's team will continue to study their kids, some 2,000 of them. You can check out his full talk at TED.com or on the TED app. Thanks for listening to our show on wisdom. Our production staff here at NPR includes Jeff Rogers, Brent Bachman, Megan Kane, Neva Grant, and Sanaz Meshkanpour, with help this week from Maria Paz Gutierrez and Daniel Shukin. Our partners at TED are Chris Anderson, Kelly Stetzel, and Janet Lee. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Ideas Worth Spreading right here on the TED Radio Hour from NPR.